If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke today. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 62. So it's a little bit of a large section. Uh, we're continuing on in the book. Today we're looking at the denial, the betrayal, and the arrest of Jesus Christ. So this is a, a pretty sobering section. Um, and I want to encourage us to fight uh, any temptation to simply glaze over it because of familiarity. Um, and, and what I want us to see in this text is the role of prayer. The title today is Pray That You May Not Enter Into Temptation. The main point which is there is pray. prayer is the means in which we stand firm in our faith and resist temptation. Um, so we're putting it out there. This message is largely about prayer. And as we read through this text, I want you to notice why Jesus prays, who Jesus prays for, and what is the result of Jesus' prayer. So that's, that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at prayer, how Jesus prays, what is he telling us today about prayer. So I want to go ahead and encourage you uh, to stand. We stand here at the reading of God's Word. We do so uh, because it comes inspired by God with his full authority. And we do so as a way of honoring our King and our Lord. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and went, as, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to them, Judas... Would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out, against a, out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour in the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. 
Then a servant girl, seeing him, as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are the one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval about an hour, still another said, insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, but he too is a Galilee, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to them, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And we went out and wept bitterly. Let's pray. Father, Father, we look at your text today at the betrayal, the denial, the arrest of your son Jesus. And it is, it is a horror in so many ways that you, the creator, have entered into creation and are rejected and are killed. Lord, give us understanding today as we come into this text. Give us understanding about how you lived in this hour why you live this way, how we are to live also. God, give us clarity today. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. Y'all may be seated. Um, so, our passage begins with Jesus predicting Peter's denial, and it ends with Peter weeping after he has denied Jesus. So those are our bookends. Those are the brackets that we have. So we're going to move scene by scene. At the end, we're going to give a few summarizing statements about what we have seen. But we're going to begin by saying, our strength is not sufficient to resist temptation. That's, that's what first thing we're going to see. Our passage begins, Jesus turns to Peter and tells him, Satan has demanded to sift him. Now, to sift wheat is a violent process. It's a thrashing that takes place. You're separating the kernel from the husk, so you are literally beating the wheat in order to separate them. And the point is, Satan wants to shake Peter so hard that he loses his faith. He wants to shake him so that he'd become discouraged and never follow Jesus again. Or possibly so discouraged that he would think Jesus would never want him to follow him again. Can you imagine hearing such news from Jesus, the Son of God? But then comes verse 32. Verse 32 is hope. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now notice what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say, don't worry, I won't let Satan do that. He doesn't say, Peter, you're strong, you'll be fine. Nor does he assign Peter a protection detail of angels, which that would have been cool. But what he does is pray. Prayer is the means that Jesus is going to protect Peter. And notice what Jesus prays. He does not pray that Peter will not experience temptation, but that his faith will persevere. He prays that your faith will not fail. And then in verse 32, Jesus gives assurance that his prayer will be answered because he says, and when you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers, meaning there will be a stumbling, but you're going to turn. Your faith will persevere. And so three things. Number one, the temptation is very real. This temptation is real, and Peter will stumble here. He will sin. And after, after all, Jesus says, when you have turned again, meaning you, 
he will repent. This is a very real temptation. Second, this temptation will serve as a means of Peter strengthening the brothers, meaning the other disciples, followers of Jesus, which we fall into that as well also. Hear this. We don't follow Jesus perfectly. Like None of you are perfect. I'm not perfect. There is no perfect Christian. We all will stumble. But when we do, we can repent and follow Jesus knowing that he will even use our trial and our temptation for our good, for the good, and also for the good of others. Like We, we see that right here, lived out. Third, this is, this is really the important one, prayer is a means that Peter will persevere. The answer to Peter of how he will persevere in the sifting of Satan is prayer. And notice Peter's response in verse 33. Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. I love Peter, don't you? Like, would, you have really, would you have answered any differently? Denying Jesus is a foreign thought to Peter. Peter is too strong to sin against Jesus. Peter has seen Jesus walk on water, raise the dead, heal the sick. Peter looks at himself and says, there is no way I will fall away. But in verse 34, we see that our strength is not enough. Jesus turns and tells Peter, Tonight, you will deny me three times. I, I, I can easily act like Peter. I think I'm emotionally strong enough. I'm mentally strong enough. I'm physically strong enough. There's no way I'm going to stumble. I mean, if you present the temptation to me, say, look, today you're going to stumble. I'm not stumbling. You know? I mean, like, we, we gear up. We get ready, put the game day face on, you know, whatever you got to do. I can resist temptation, but here what we learn is that you by yourself, that me by myself, I am not able to resist temptation. I am not strong enough. Peter is not strong enough. You are not strong enough. Now in verse 35, the focus changes. He just leaves it right there. All attention has been on Peter, but now Jesus turns and he looks at the rest of the disciples. And in verses 35 through 38, Jesus is going to let the disciples know the times are changing. There's a cost to following Jesus. Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, he has been talking about this cost. Luke chapter 9, everyone who follows me must take up his cross. Luke chapter 14, uh, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot follow me. He continually is talking about the cost of following Jesus. But up to this moment, there has not been a large cost, at least seemingly. And so now Jesus is letting them know the times are changing. And he's going to show that the cost of following Jesus is to be treated like Jesus. In verse 35, Jesus describes what life has been like. And he basically says, look, you've had everything provided for you. You haven't need to worry about money or bags or sandals or anything. But then in verse 36, he says, but now you're going to need these things. And in fact, he says, you can go sell your coat and buy a sword. He's communicating. Life has been seemingly easy, but now it's going to move into the greater difficulty. Now, why? What's taking place here well there's there's a transition in time that's taking place history is culminating that christ has come but we're moving now to the very mission of christ that he would die and rise again at the cross and so at verse 37 jesus quotes isaiah 53 12 saying scripture must be fulfilled 
Now, Isaiah 53, it's one of those super famous chapters in the Old Testament. You need to know Isaiah 53. Write it down. Go read Isaiah 53. It is a chapter that anyone should be able to say Isaiah 53, and you automatically know what we're talking about. Isaiah 53 uh, is one of those uh, chapters describing the suffering servant, which is the Messiah. And Isaiah 53 talks about how this suffering servant, the Messiah, is going to come and he's going to die for the sins of others. And it's the passage that says it was the will of God to crush him. And so what Jesus is saying is Isaiah 53 is coming true. And he quotes specifically Isaiah 53, 12 that says he was numbered with the transgressors. Now the problem is Jesus is not a transgressor, is he? I mean, he's perfect. He's the Son of God. He's holy. He's righteous in every way. But at the cross, he becomes a transgressor. He becomes a transgressor because he takes your sin and my sin so that we could be forgiven. What we call this, we call this the great exchange. Now, this is the gospel that Jesus comes and he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And so here, At the cross, Jesus is going to take the sins of all those who will ever believe in Him. He's going to take the sins of the bride, sins of the body of Christ, and He's going to die and absorb the punishment for that. He's going to be numbered as a transgressor. 2 Corinthians 5 says He becomes sin. Your sin, my sin, actually becomes sin. His sin. He takes it as if He has done it and He pays the price for it. And in the doing so, by faith in Him, He gives us His righteousness. Which is why, just as Jesus is a Son of God, now because we have His righteousness, we become sons of God. And So how does this connect, though, to needing money, bags, and swords? Well, if Jesus the Son of God is going to be rejected and crucified, then the disciples can count on being rejected also. That's the point that he's making. If Jesus is treated like a criminal, so will the disciples. Remember, John 15, which is a very similar uh, time frame as what is taking place here. It's after the meal. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. They've debated about who is the greatest. And then Jesus in John 15 says, if you were of the world, The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. There's a cost to following Jesus. And Jesus is preparing his his disciples for the battle that lies ahead, but, but they miss it. They miss it because in verse 38, say, look, Jesus, we got two swords. Like, that's good, right? And we know that they miss it because the proof is in the garden, right? When Judas comes, they break out the swords. One of them even cuts off someone's ear. Does Jesus say, all right, let's go, guys? No. Stop. What are you doing? We don't fight with the sword. Look, the church never picks up the sword. It's not who we are. We don't engage in a physical battle. We're engaging in a spiritual battle. And the disciples seem to miss it. And the tragic truth is that there are many Christians today that seem to have also missed the truth that when we become believers, we are engaged in a spiritual warfare. If you look at like Christian bookshelves, 
They're full of titles on how to have your best life, on how to have all the joy you want now. Gospel presentations almost always focus exclusively on the, the joy, on the peace that we have in Jesus. Sermons are filled with steps to better marriage, better sex, better relationships. I mean, that's primarily what so much of Christianity seems to be communicating today. Now, to be clear, Jesus does offer us abundant joy. And not to minimize that at all. Philippian, or Psalm 16, 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is no greater pleasure than being a child of God. There is insurpassable joy in that. Paul tells us the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. I mean, there is amazing benefits and joy of coming a Christian. Philippians 4, 4, Paul commands us, rejoice in the Lord always. This isn't something he's saying, guys, you've got to work on it. It's just not fun, but try to have fun being a Christian. No, he's saying rejoice. We love being Christians. Listen, the Christian life is one of joy, but it's also one of war. Satan is a roaring lion looking for who he can devour, looking for who he can sift. And just like he wanted to sift Peter, he wants to sift the church today. Just as Christians in the first century have struggled with sinful desires, so will we. But we need to communicate the joy that we have in Christ. We need to communicate that. But what we also need to communicate, not only to one another, but also in our gospel presentations to unbelievers, is that we're also called to stand firm. There is a cost. Notice when the rich young ruler comes and says, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus didn't just give him the easy gospel presentation and bring him in. He says, go sell everything you have. There's a cost. There's not a big wide door. It's a small door, and it's called cost over it. Because Jesus says, all who come to me will bear a cross, will live the life that I have lived, will be treated as I have lived. John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, one of the most influential books um, on my life, he writes in there that life is not about being on a cruise ship, but rather it's on a battleship. Because if you look at two different types of ship, cruise ship and battleship, on the cruise ship, you're going to have people sunbathing, reading books, drinking, sleeping, you know, going to uh, the all-you-can-eat buffets and, and eating and eating and eating. And that's cool because you already paid for it, right? And it's good food. You just eat. And then you leave and you're like 20 pounds heavier, but you're happy. Now, on a battleship, you eat. Right? You play games sometimes too. Like those things happen. But what is everything in the context of? War. Everything is in the context of war. We live as aliens and strangers on this earth. Our message is offensive. Do you realize that? Like think about it. We tell, we're commissioned by God, by the Son of God, to go into this world Go to Lebanon, go next door, and we tell people that according to the Bible, you are rebellious, sinful, and wicked. And if you do not repent, then you will suffer the eternal hellfire of God. Like, think, that's our message. It's a very offensive message. There's no way to get around that. If you're praying, God, I just really help my neighbor to receive this message really well. You're saying you're going to hell unless you believe in Jesus. 
It's an offensive message. Now, yes, we pray that it's received, but don't think that we're, we ought to wait until people are just saying, hey, I, I'm ready. I really want to hear the bad news of the gospel. We go and we share the message of the gospel. We share that we have unsurpassable joy in Christ. We share all the joy, all the treasures that God has given us. But we also share that there's a cost to following Jesus. There are trials and temptations. Satan wants to sink us. He wants to sift us. So how do we stand firm? We've already seen that our strength is not enough. The proof proof is Peter did deny Jesus. He said, no, I won't. I'll stick with you to prison, to death. But at the end of the day, he denies him three times. So as we move into the garden scene, we see exactly how we're to fight. What we're going to see is that prayer is the means in which we fight temptation. Twice in this section, look at verse 40, look at verse 46. The same words. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. So we have two bookends. Prediction of Peter's denial, Peter's denial, and then within this, there's two other smaller bookends. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And what's in the middle? Jesus prays. It's the focus of the whole text. Jesus prays. Verse 44, we see that Jesus is in such agony that he is sweating drops of blood. Now, now think about it. Jesus is not the only person in history to have ever faced death, to know that he's going to die. There have been many women, many men who have bravely faced death, and they did not sweat drops of blood. What's the difference? What's happening here? Jesus knows that death is God's judgment on sin. Remember. Remember Isaiah 53, 12, which he just quoted. He's going to be numbered with the transgressors. Because Jesus knows that God judges all sin and the judgment is death, he knows that at the cross, as he bears our sin, he's going to endure the full wrath of God. So in the garden, he's beginning to feel the weight of that come upon him. He knows the full hellfire wrath of God is going to be directed upon Jesus at the cross. Now this is a hell, a wrath that it takes you and me an eternity to absorb, which means we can never pay it off. And Jesus is going to take the sins of all those who believe in him, the full body of Christ, the full bride of Christ, and he's going to absorb it on a cross in a finite period of time. He's feeling the weight of it now. And so what's his course of action? Now think about this. This is what we need to know here. Jesus is going to endure a trial, a temptation, a suffering far greater than you and I will ever, 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 ever experience. And so not to minimize our trials, trials of raising children, trials of death, trials of suffering, trials of cancer, trials of all the things that we go through on this earth. Not to minimize them, but they do not compare to the trial and the temptation that Christ is about to go in as he's going to absorb the wrath of God. But what I want to know is, what's he going to do? Because what he does is what we are called to do in our trials, in our temptations, in our sufferings, in our pain. And, and if 
what he's going to do as he's going to experience the greatest suffering and pain ever possible, I want to know what he does so that we also can stand firm and we also can persevere. And what we see is that Jesus prays. It almost seems anticlimactic to our, to our culture today. He prays. There's no rallying the troops. There's no chance. There's no out drinking, getting ready for the day. He prays. And he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Here in the garden, Jesus shows us how we stand firm in the face of great suffering and temptation. He submits to the Father, and he prays for the Father's will to be done. On the brink of betrayal, arrest, mockery, whippings, beatings, torture, crucifixion, and ultimately the cup of God's wrath, Jesus responds in prayer. Notice what happens. Verse 43. An angel appears and strengthens him. Jesus prays, God responds. The Son of God calls out to the Father, and the Father responds. And he strengthens him. That's how prayer works. And when we believe in Christ, we are united to Christ So we appeal to the Father the same as the Son appeals, as sons. So take great, great confidence here. When we pray, we do not pray as a foreigner and an alien and a stranger to the Father. We pray as His child, and He answers us. And prayer is the means in which we stand firm. And look, it's the means in which others stand firm too. Go back to verse 32. How is it that Jesus protects Peter? Satan says, I'm going to sift Peter. And Jesus says, well, I'm going to pray for him. I'm going to pray for him. And it's because he prays for him, he perseveres. What Peter needed most is prayer. What Jesus needed most is prayer. What you and I need most is prayer. That's the answer. It's prayer. On verse 45, our attention goes back to the disciples. Jesus has told them to pray. And what are they doing? God love the disciples. They're sleeping. Now notice why they're sleeping. Good words here. They're sleeping for sorrow because they're sorrowful, because they're sad. It's finally sunk in. Jesus is going to die. Like the one we have followed for a year and a half or two years or three years, whatever the time frame is, he's going to die. They're filled with sorrow. They're sad. They're filled with grief. So rather than pray, they sleep. Now in Matthew's account, which is very helpful, Jesus comes and he says, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak hear this our flesh is weak your flesh is weak my flesh is weak so many times we want to do the right thing right don't you want to do the right thing Romans 7 we want to do the right thing but we have this war that goes on within us but because of sorrow depression tiredness the desire for acceptance the pursuit of comfort we sin our our bodies our minds are weak we are not impervious to trials and temptations look at what 
Look at who Peter denies Jesus to. Look at verse 56. And it's very, very telling what happens here. Verse 56. Then a servant girl. Huh. The servant girl comes to Peter. The lowliest person who's probably around at this mount. The one who has no power. The one who has no prestige. The one who has no influence. Hey, you're with Jesus, right? Nope. I've got to save face in front of the servant girl. Our bodies, our minds, our flesh is weak. She has no social weight at all, and yet Peter denies Jesus right here. He thinks he is strong. He thinks he can resist temptation. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. He's not strong. And you aren't strong, and I am not either. This is why we need the gospel. This is why we need Jesus to come and down the cross for us. We are not good enough, nor can we be good enough. We are born sinful, and there's nothing you or I can do to make ourselves clean. That's what we call the bad news of the gospel. The bad news is that we are weaker than we think. We're more sinful than we think. We're more rebellious than we think. We are strapped into the electric chair of God's wrath, and we have no ability to escape then comes the good news of the gospel, right? Jesus comes. He comes as the Son of God, enters into humanity as a man, as God, and he perfectly submits to the Father. He perfectly follows the Father's will, and he dies on the cross so whoever would believe in him would be forgiven and made righteous, and he rises victorious, conquering sin, death, and Satan. That's the good news of the gospel. I ask you, have you believed in Jesus? Have you believed in Jesus? There's only two ways to live. You either trust in yourself, which according to the Bible leads to judgment, or you trust in Jesus, which brings about eternal life and forgiveness of sins because at the cross, he's paid for your sins. I urge you today, if you have not believed in Jesus, to repent and believe in Jesus. Now, the good news of the gospel it's what we love as we take communion a little bit. It's what we look forward to is that Christ will return. And when he returns, he's going to gather the body. He's going to gather the church. He's going to gather the bride that we would spend eternity with him in the new heavens and new earth where there will be no sin, no pain, no temptation, no trial ever, ever again. But until that day, we stand in between the times. And we will have trials and temptations. And the way we stand strong and experience God's blessing and power is through prayer. We resist temptation through prayer. The solution to the weakness of our flesh is the grace and power of God which comes to us in prayer. See, when we pray, we acknowledge our weakness and God's strength. When we pray, we acknowledge our limitations and God's abundant provision. And we can be confident that when we pray, we too will be strengthened just as Jesus was strengthened. Why? Because we're sons. We're children of God. We come to him as his child. And he is our father. And in Matthew, it talks about how God is our perfect Father, and He loves to give good gifts. And you can take great confidence. He might not remove the temptation. He might not remove the trial, but He will give the grace and the power and the strength to stand firm that this power, that this trial, will be used for your good, for the good of others, and ultimately for the very glory of God. I hope you hear this. 
Prayer is one of the most powerful activities we can do here on earth. In prayer, we turn from ourselves and we trust in the full power of God. Prayer is our faith in action. Prayer is us trusting in the promises of God. God, you said I'm your son when I believed in you. I'm now praying to you as your child. I need strength. We're banking on his promise right then. We're banking that our God is all glorious, is perfect and righteous, and He stays the same. He's immutable, and what He has said will come true. So when we approach Him, His grace and His power and His strength flows to us. Prayer is how we stand firm, and it's how we help others stand firm. So let's just think this through real quick. What should we be doing then? Go ahead, interaction. What should we do? It's one word. We ought to pray. We ought to pray for our spouses. We ought to pray for our children. We ought to pray for our church. We ought to pray for believers around the world. One of the most loving things we can do for anyone is pray for them. Pray. Not not just for them, but with them. Listen, if we are going to have an impact as Timberline Baptist Church in this community, in our neighborhoods, in 98503, it will not be by our plans and our strategies. It will be as we depend upon God in prayer. If we are going to stand firm in our homes, it will be by prayer. As we go to Lebanon, we will plan, we will prepare, we will do a lot of really neat, fun things. But our success does not hinge on our abilities and our strength. It hinges on God and the way that we depend upon Him, the way that we trust in Him, the way that we want Him to be glorified and Him to be known is by coming to our knees in prayer. Prayer is God's gift to us. Do you realize that? It's not a toil. It's a gift. It's the pipeline that God gives his, his strength and His grace to us. Now, if you look at verses 47 to 53, we see the betrayal and the rest of Jesus. Now, in the garden, we see His humanity. The humanity of Jesus is just on display as He cries out to the Father. But as we move now to the rest, we see His divinity. Jesus is not helpless in this situation, but He's ruling in this situation so what we're going to see is jesus sovereignly rules in all the trials of life verse 47 judas comes to betray jesus with a kiss now notice verse 48 is jesus caught off guard whoa i didn't see this coming no judas would you betray the son of man with a kiss with an intimate act of love now the title son of man it comes from where daniel Seven. We need to know that. Daniel 7, another passage we need to know. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 is a divine figure who is given dominion and rule over all creation. How does Jesus title himself right here as he's being arrested? I'm the Son of Man, the very one prophesied 700 years prior who will rule over all creation and earth. Are you betraying me? Let's be clear. Jesus knows exactly who he is. He is not a victim. He is ruling in this situation. 
He's the king over all creation. He is the one sustaining all of life by his very word at this moment. He is the very one who gives the heartbeat to Judas that he would betray him right here. So let us not think that Jesus is a helpless victim. Rather, he's in complete control. And we see evidence of this as chaos breaks out. Look at verse 56. We see one of the disciples cuts off the ear of the high priest. What does Jesus do? No more of this. Shouts, no more of this. You, you can't read this. So when you read the Bible, you should read it like it's meant to be read. You can't read it, but no more of this. And you like, you got to read it. Just so you know, like, that's what I do. That's why I get up early at my house. So nobody hears me. It's, it's funny sounding kind of, but it's how we're supposed to read the Bible. Matthew's account, this is what happens. Jesus says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? As He looks at Peter. <laughs> you, know, you just see that stare. Put the sword up, Peter. Who's in control? Who's in control according to the Bible at this moment? I mean, you got to think about it. Who is the Bible presenting as in control? It's Jesus. The world may plant, plot against Jesus, may plot against God, may plot against the church, but let us remember our God sovereignly rules in every event. Don't ever think that evil will triumph over God or that God's plans will be thwarted by sin or Satan or anyone else. And then we see that Jesus heals the man. He picks up the amputated ear. Don't you just wish you were here for this part? And he puts it on the guy. What did that look like? Just puts it on him, and it's healed. What'd that guy do next? Like, what went through his head? Other evidence of Jesus' control, look down at verse 61. Peter has denied Jesus, and Luke, the author, wants to be very clear. This is not something that happened without prophecy. He makes clear in verse 61 that we clearly know Jesus has prophesied that Peter will deny him three times prior to the rooster crowing. Hear this. Jesus came to earth to die on a cross. He sovereignly rules over every moment. What happens at the cross is horrific, but in the horror, God is working to bring about salvation for our good and his glory. So I want to summarize just a few things here. I want to, to close, I want us to make sure we see the connection between prayer, trials, and God's sovereignty. I just want us to see that connection right here. Number one, Jesus knows suffering. Don't miss it. Jesus knows suffering. He was betrayed, beaten, mocked, rejected, and crucified. And that's where we're going to go. We're actually going to take a two-week break. Next week, we're looking at Orphan Sunday. And uh, next two weeks, we'll be looking at that. So then November later, we'll be back in the next text looking at this. When we pray to Jesus about standing firm in our faith, we are praying to one who has stood firm in his faith. We are praying to the one who can empathize with us, as Hebrews 4 says, and he knows the depths of our pain. He has experienced shame, loss, hurt, and rejection. And he knows how to perfectly strengthen us when we come to him in prayer. Do you realize that? Like, Why would we not come to him? He has all the answers, all the grace, all the power, and he says, come to me in prayer, and I will give it to you. Who else should we turn to? 
Number two, trials reveal our weaknesses and God's strength. Trials remind us of the times we are in. We live in an age where Satan wants to sift us. We live in an age where our flesh is weak, and we will be tempted to not trust in Jesus. You can count on it. Today, you'll be, trust, you'll be tempted not to trust in Jesus. Tonight, tomorrow, every day, there will be temptations, there will be trials. But these trials are a means of God's grace to remind us to trust in Him. Do you realize that? These are trials, rather than making our heads hang low, are meant to raise our eyes to Jesus that we would trust in him for his strength. If there was no trials, we would easily think that we can do all things in our strength, right? Think about that. If you believe in Jesus and instantly there's no more trial, no more temptation, you never struggle with sin again, how would we walk in this earth? People would be attracted to us, not our Savior. They would be attracted to us. They'd say, man, I want to be like you, I want your life. And as the person, how much would you be trusting in Jesus? It's the trials. It's those pains that God graciously brings in so that we would experience his gracious provision and his strength. This is why Peter, then we're told, will strengthen the brothers. And if you go read his letters, that's what he does. He strengthens the brothers who are living in pain. Read 1 Peter and 2 Peter. He's writing to them that they would stand firm in trials. Peter knows what it is to be in trials. He has stood now because of God's grace through Jesus' prayer, and now he's instructing the church on how to live. It's trials, it's pain, it's suffering that God uses as a means of drawing us into his presence that we would pray to him and experience his strength and blessing. Fathers, mothers, pray. Your children need you see you prayer. The foxes said that our children need to see us go into other countries. That's true. They need to see us. But you know what they need to see every single day? Is us praying with them and for them. And for the church. And for our neighbors. And for everything that happens on in our life. Pray for our neighbors. We need to pray as a church. If we're going to grow, not, not just so we grow, but if we're going to grow deep in our faith, if we're going to multiply as disciples, if we're going to see unbelievers come to know Christ, how is it going to be? Only as our plans are bathed in prayer, trusting in God. In our marriages, we need to pray. You can't change your spouse. We pray that God changes us, that God changes them, and we pray it all happens by His grace and His strength. Pray for our children. In our difficult relationships, so often what we try to do, we come up with techniques. The Bible gives it to us. Pray. Pray. Number three, Jesus rules over all trials. Jesus is in control at all times. Jesus sovereignly ruled over Peter's temptation. That's why Peter remained in his faith. In fact, the temptation Peter endured was a means in which God ordained that Peter would strengthen others. We've already talked about that. This is the power of God. When Satan plans, what Satan plans for destruction, God uses for good. There's no better case than that than the cross, is there? Satan thinks he's killed Jesus. He's crucified him. He's won. But what's happened? Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, Satan defeats Satan, sin, did I say that right? Jesus, I think I messed up a word there. That's an important word to get right. Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, defeats sin, death, and Satan. That's an important one. Know that whatever trial 
temptation, whatever pain you're going through, God rules in it. Do you know that? Whatever pain you're in right now, whatever trial, whatever difficult relationship, whatever you're enduring, God rules in that situation. And he's going to use it for your good. He's going to use it for others' good. Now, we oftentimes have no idea how that happens. Peter, at that time, had no idea how this is good. But we can trust in the scriptures that say our God is ruling in it. Sin says God has forgotten about you. Sin says God doesn't want you. Sin says you are not good enough or important enough for God to listen to. But hear this, when we pray, we are praying to a God who is the cosmic king, sovereignly ruling over every inch of all creation. There's not one atom, one molecule, one particle, or one moment in time in which our God is not in absolute control. Our God has created all things, owns all things, possesses all things. And and while this is how big our God is, the Bible tells us that when we pray, we come to him like a small child to a father. Prayer is one of the most personal ways we interact with God. And it's in prayer that the cosmic king reaches into our lives, provides the grace that we need to stand firm in our faith, to love others, and to share the gospel. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take communion. Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you that your son has come to live a perfect life because we cannot live a perfect life. We thank you that you have defeated sin, death, and Satan at the cross. We thank you that because of that, we have the guarantee that when we believe in you, we become your children. That when we believe in you, we become united to you. That when we believe in you, that we become righteous as you are righteous so that we might cry out to the Father and he would hear us and he knows us and he loves us and he fills us with strength and grace and power. God, I pray that our hearts would be warmed today, that in whatever trial, whatever temptation that we are in, you are in control and you are using that in ways that we have no idea how at this moment, but we can cry out to you knowing that you will give wisdom, knowing that you will give strength, knowing that you will give whatever is needed for the purpose of us standing firm and you to be glorified. God, our trials are not evidence of your absence, but they're evidence of your presence working in us. May we know that. And may we understand that you have given us prayer as a gift. As a gift to us that we can speak to you at any moment, of any day, at any time, and that you hear us, you love us, and you answer us. God, we thank you for your son. In your name, Jesus, amen.